You know, traveling to Northern California to see Redwood National Park has always been pretty high up on my bucket list. You know, there's just something surreal to me about being able to see the, see the immense size of these trees. I mean, some of the largest redwoods grow to be over 350 feet tall with a diameter of over 24 feet weighing up to, up to 800 tons. That's 1.5 million pounds. One tree. And with a height that size, just to put that into perspective, that's one and a half Dudley Towers if you were to go in downtown Wausau. One tree that is that tall. I mean, that is absolutely incredible, thinking a tree that is that large. And the most incredible part about these trees is the root system that keeps them standing up. Now, just think about that. 350 feet tall. 800 tons, 24 feet across, and you've got torrential downpours, you've got heavy winds. How deep do you think the roots have to go to keep these trees upright in the midst of the storms? I want you to think of a number in your head. How deep do you think their roots go? Pick a number. How many of you said more than 10 feet? How many of you said more than 20 feet? More than 50 feet? More than 100 feet? Okay, here's the answer. Here's the answer. Six to 10 feet. For real, six to 10 feet is the usual depth for the redwoods roots. I mean, how in the world are such massive trees anchored by roots that only go six to 10 feet deep? The answer is really simple. It's because of the unity of the trees. You see that redwoods always grow together and the roots interlock and interweave with one another to where they literally hold each other up when the storms hit. They're strengthened by depending on each other for nutrients and support. They literally hold each other up. And I love that picture because I think that picture envisions what Jesus desires for the church to be. Scripture tells us that we are to be a community of Christ followers who support one another, who encourage one another, who help uh, each other grow spiritually and help hold each other up. We are called to have interwoven spiritual root systems that empower us to stand firm against the storms that we might face. Here's the point. We are stronger together. We're stronger when we are unified and we have that interconnectedness. And that is how God calls us as a church to stand against the opposition and the persecution and the trials that might come our way. However, Satan knows that. Satan knows the power of our unity. Satan knows the power of a unified Christian community to change a city, to change a culture, and to change a country. And Satan will do everything he can to get us to divide over our differences. And the more he succeeds at loosening our unity, the more he succeeds at getting us to champion our independence over our interdependence, and the better he is at untwining our spiritual roots, the closer we are to being uprooted the next time a storm hits. Now I'm going to speak on this topic tonight because I think Satan is seeing too much victory in this particular area. Our country and culture have been divided into warring factions. We live in a time where division and disunity are the norm. And as Americans are divided over pretty much everything, because of that, we are not weathering the storms that we are facing well at all. 
However, disunity and division is ju- not just a problem for our American culture on a, on a larger scale, but and sadly, disunity has also pervaded the church as well. According to the New Testament, division and disunity should be a rare infection in the body of Christ, but why does it seem like it's a chronic condition? Many Christ followers have chosen to focus more on the things that tear us apart instead of the things that bind us together. Christ followers are dividing over secondary theological issues like my preferred eschatological viewpoint or how to worship on a Sunday morning or uh, how I come down on other gray or liberty areas in the Christian faith. Christ followers are dividing over their political preferences. They see any alternative viewpoint as essentially anathema And they make their kind of political box a litmus test to see the validity or maturity of another Christ follower. Christ followers are dividing over how to best respond to the recent coronavirus crisis. And they aren't just merely disagreeing, they're dividing over it. Christ followers are dividing over how to respond to the eruption of racial tension we've seen within our country over the last month. In an era of disunity and division within our culture, the church should be shining into the darkness as a beacon of light and hope. We should be a countercultural community that teaches the world what it looks like to be unified. And unity is one of the things that Jesus most ardently champions from his followers. Just listen to these passages of when Jesus is speaking on the night that he's betrayed. These are some of his final remarks coming out of John 13. In verse 34, he says, A new command I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Later in John 17, 20 through 23, he writes, I don't, he's praying to his father here. And he says, Father, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus says, be one. And that's how the world is going to know that I truly am the Christ. Don't miss the importance of what Jesus is saying here. He's telling us that one of our most powerful witnessing tools to an unbelieving and watching world is our love for one another. When the world looks at the church, it should scratch its head in confusion over the supernatural unity that binds us together. But sadly, I think right now, when the world looks at the church, it scratches its head about the reality that the church can't seem to agree on anything. Friends, we have to do better for the sake of the gospel. If Highland is truly a light set on a hill for our community, then we need to pursue gospel-centered unity for the glory of God. And that brings us to our big idea for today's sermon. It's pretty simple. Here it is. When the church is unified, God is glorified. When the church is unified, God is glorified. And that principle is made explicitly clear in our text tonight. So if you have your Bibles or your, uh, your devices, you can turn to Romans chapter 15. And as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context to what's going on. The church at Rome wasn't good at the unity thing. 
There's a lot of problems with division and they had broken into different factions and different groups. There were the Jewish Christians. There were the Gentile Christians. There were the strong brothers. There were the weak brothers. And the only thing that they agreed upon was that they disagreed on everything else. And in the opening chapters of the book of Romans, Paul gives a powerful apologetic for the biblical gospel. It's a gospel-centered book. But then at the end of the book, he weaves how that gospel message should inform and transform a variety of modern-day issues for Christ followers. So he shows us how the gospel should inform our use of spiritual gifts, how it should inform our understanding of gray or liberty areas as Christ followers. It should inform how we also interact with one another, and that's exactly what our text talks about in Romans 15. In this section, Paul is emphasizing the power of the gospel to unify us and to bring us together. Through the power of Jesus, the things that once divided us no longer have to divide us. Through the power of Jesus, we have been knitted together as one body, one community, and one family through our shared experience of God's grace. So Romans 15, 5, and 6 Paul is petitioning God for the unity of the church. And I think this is a prayer that we would be wise to both study and apply. So listen to verses five and six. Here's what Paul says. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What? A beautiful prayer. As Paul thinks about the division and disunity that's erupting in the Roman church, he cries out and asks for the Lord to work in their lives so that they can have hearts of unity that bring glory to him. Paul is pleading for the Lord to help these believers to begin intertwining their spiritual root systems and start viewing each other as brother and sister in Christ rather than as an enemy to be defeated. And Paul in verse 6 reminds us why this is so urgent. He says, disunity dishonors the Lord. Or to put it in the positive, going back to our big idea, unity, when the church is unified, God is glorified. So as we unpack these verses tonight, I want to briefly consider how we can pursue unity within our Christian community. I want us to think how we can pursue Jesus' power to unite us through a mutual love and support for one another. And here's our first principle as we think about that. Principle number one, we need God's help to achieve unity. We need God's help to achieve unity. Notice a key phrase that Paul uses in verse five. He petitions the Lord to grant us to be able to live in such harmony and unity with one another. Recognize the significance of the verbiage there. By asking the Lord to grant us that ability, he's showing us that unity is something that's received, not merely achieved. We can't do it on our own. Lasting unity can't come from any other source than God himself. Humanity's ability to embody a a unified community that's centered on sacrificial love was shattered at the fall because sin is inherently divisive. Sin is inherently divisive. It breaks relationships. It breaks our relationship with God our relationship with one another, our relationship with creation, and our relationship with ourselves. That is what happens. So apart from God's grace, unity is an unattainable goal. 
And really just think about that. The 20th century is really a testimony to that reality, isn't it? Coming off of World War II, there was a optimism and a desire to achieve unity and peace around the globe. And you saw organizations like the United Nations or NATO or the European Union arise during this time. And they believed that would be the solution. But here we are in 2020, and do we live in a perfectly peace and unified world? No. No, we live in a world that's just as divided as ever. No organization, no political leader, no legislation has the power to eradicate disunity. And that's because disunity is at its heart a sin problem. Disunity is a stronghold that Satan has constructed in our world. And since disunity is tethered to sin and we don't have the power to overcome sin and on our own, the only answer is the gospel and the power of God in our lives. The transforming power of the gospel is the only thing with the power to give us a permanent cure for disunity. And I love how Paul makes that point in Ephesians chapter two. Just listen to these verses. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Jesus himself is our peace and he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and that he might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Did you catch the logic of this passage? Paul says that one aspect of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross is to put an end to the division and hostility that has divided us. Now, specifically in this passage, Paul's referring to the division and hostility between Jews and Gentiles, but that principle can be broadened out to all of humanity. Jesus came to tear down the wall of hostility between us. In Jesus, God is creating one unified family from a diversity of cultures and ethnicities. And Jesus, God is reconciling us both to himself and ultimately to one another as well. And Jesus, God is tearing down the dividing wall of hostility that keeps us isolated and at war with one another. And Jesus, God is adopting sons and daughters from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And Jesus, we have an, a, new, a new identity. We are sons and daughters of the king. And here's a really important thing to keep in mind. When you're adopted into God's family, you ain't an only child. <laughs> Maybe some of you grew up as an only child. I'm sorry, that's not how it works in God's family. God adopted you to have lots of spiritual siblings. And though our spiritual siblings have different backgrounds and educations and preferences and upbringings than we do, we have far more in common than that which divides us. We have the same loving Father. We have the same merciful Savior. We have the same Holy Spirit who dwells within each and every one of us. We have the same Imago Dei. We've been created in the image of God. We have the same eternal destiny, and we have the same shared guidebook, the Bible for life. Through Jesus, God has granted his church everything that we need to be unified if we just choose to put it into practice. The things that divide the world should no longer divide the people of Christ because our identity is no longer found in those things. Our identity is no longer found in our economic status. Our identity is no longer found in our political party or our occupations 
or our wealth or our success or our culture. And that's a good thing because if our identity was still found in those things, unity would be impossible. If our identity is in any of those things and other people with competing identities will always be an enemy to be defeated and destroyed. But when our identity is rooted in the gospel and Jesus Christ, all of that changes. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in verse 5 of our passage in Romans 15. He says, our unity and harmony as a spiritual family is in accord with Christ Jesus. We are bound together with an unshakable bond in our shared identity in Jesus. Which means when there is disunity in the Christian community over non-essential issues. And that is important. I'm not saying that we compromise because there are essential core beliefs of the Christian faith that we cannot agree to disagree upon. I'm not talking about the gospel or faith in Jesus Christ alone or the inerrancy of God's word. I'm talking about non-essential issues. When we divide over those things, it's because we have a case of identity amnesia. We've forgotten who we are in Jesus. We have forgotten the transforming power of the gospel. We've forgotten that we are all part of God's family and God's number one rule is that his children get along with each other. We've forgotten that in humility, we are to consider the needs of other people as more significant than our own. We have forgotten that being a follower of Jesus means we focus more on pleasing others than pleasing myself as Romans 15, one through three would say. And when we've forgotten these things, we stop seeing ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ and we start thinking in the categories of us, versus them. And when we think in those categories, we'll never be able to live in harmony with each other. Just think about the nuance of the word harmony that we see in this passage, that you may live in harmony. I think the quintessential example of harmony would be a symphonic orchestra. When you think of a symphonic orchestra, you have four main groups of instruments. You have the percussion, you have the wood, uh, sorry, <laughs> you have percussion, you have brass, you have strings, and you have the woodwinds. And each different group has its own unique sound. Each different group has its own unique contribution to the piece. However, the notes are not the same for each instrument. They're different but the notes are always harmonious because they follow the same general melody. They're playing the same song and they follow the same conductor. The different and diverse musical tones blend together perfectly to form a beautiful and unified performance. And that's what Jesus envisions for his church. We are called to be a harmonious community of believers. But remember, harmony is not the same as playing in unison. Playing in unison is when all the instruments play the exact same identical notes. Unison removes all the diversity and all of the harmony and just leaves you with mere uniformity. And that's so important to keep in mind because when we shift from thinking about harmony to uniformity, disunity and division will always begin to emerge. Because the reality is we have different perspectives on matters of faith. The spirit leads us in different directions on non-essential issues. And when we want uniformity, everybody else's opinion is wrong and mine is right. And if there's only one right opinion, I got to make sure it's mine. 
So I'm going to dig my heels in. I'm going to plant my feet firmly and I'm going to combat everybody and make sure that I am victorious at the end. And then I begin to start thinking in categories of us and them, everybody else who disagrees with me. Anyone who disagrees with my arrangement of the music becomes an enemy to be defeated. Anyone who takes a different interpretive stance than I do or viewpoint, I view them as immature in their spiritual walk. And as we continue to think in those dangerous categories of us versus them, we need to realize that's not how Jesus envisions unity for his body. The path to unity is not uniformity, but harmony among diversity. Let me say that one more time. The path to unity is not uniformity, but harmony among diversity. The path to unity is not forcing everybody to take my opinion on the matter. It's the maturity to see that we can be playing the same piece of music, the gospel, following the same conductor, Jesus, and voicing those notes for God's glory in different ways while still being unified together. But this can only happen when we break the spirit of us versus them. And that's our second principle. We must break the spirit of us versus them. One of Paul's favorite metaphors for the church in the New Testament is the body of Christ. It's a really neat metaphor. And think of our second point this way. If we are the body of Christ together, when we have a spirit of us versus them, we have given the body of Christ an autoimmune disorder. An autoimmune disorder is when your body's immune system turns against itself. Instead of attacking dangerous pathogens that enter the body and try to infect you, instead, your immune system is now fighting your body's own healthy tissue. That's what a spirit of us versus them does to the body of Christ. We turn the body of Christ in against itself and start attacking one another, and it it destroys unity, and ultimately, it breaks Jesus' heart. So what does this practically look like? It's when brothers and sisters get into heated and belligerent debates on Facebook for a watching world to see. I saw a brother in Christ share some thoughts on what God's been teaching him over the last few months on Facebook this week. And I saw another Christ follower who obviously disagreed that commented on there, you've totally lost your mind. Could you just use some common sense? What kind of witness is that? It's when brothers and sisters elevate a matter of political preference to orthodoxy, and then we're angered when another Christ follower doesn't see it my way. Issues like environmentalism or immigration or school choice or military interventionism become flashpoints for Christian disunity in a fight. So when brothers and sisters in Christ judge and mock each other for holding different positions on liberty, gray issues in scripture, Maybe it's a teetotaler who writes off their spiritual sibling who's drinking responsibly as immature or worldly in their faith. Or on the opposite side, maybe it's someone who has the liberty to drink alcohol in a wise way, and they mock those who don't as being prudish and fundamentalists. So when the church splits over worship styles, believing that my way is the way that Jesus really likes, and I have it right. So when brothers and sisters in Christ divide over how to respond to the coronavirus crisis and immediately assume the worst about the person on the other side of the debate, we have to overcome that spirit of us versus them. With those different non-essential 
to the gospel issues. We have to realize the person on the other side is not the enemy. They're my brother or sister in Christ, and I need to treat them like that. We can't allow differences to divide us. What unites us in Christ is so much greater than that which divides us. Now tonight, I want to close out by talking a little more in length about how to respond to one particular issue that's dividing the church right now. How do we respond to the mounting racial tension within our country? Over the past few weeks, there's been an eruption of racial tension in our society. Racial tensions have been boiling beneath the surface for years, but the tragic deaths of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd have brought all of that pain, confusion, and tension to the surface. It's truly heartbreaking. And I'll be honest with you, over the past few weeks, I've struggled with how to properly process all that has transpired. I've been daily pondering, how do we make sense of everything that's happening right now as Christ followers? How, as the church, should we respond to injustice? As Christ followers who allow our gospel to frame our response and our worldview, what should we say and what should we do? We have some Christians shouting, black lives matter. We have other Christians shouting back in anger, all lives matter. There's some Christians who are protesting racism and injustice, while there's others who are denying that racism and injustice are even a problem in 21st century America. We have people on both sides of the issues that view the other side as the problem, and we've broken into the mindset of us versus them, and the body of Christ is once again divided. So what's a biblical, gospel-centered response to racism, injustice, and prejudice? Now, I want you to know that as I share tonight, I'm not speaking from a place of having this all figured out. I'm actually really nervous to speak about this, so I'd appreciate if you give me grace. I don't pretend to know all of the vast intricacies and complexities that frame the issue. I'm speaking from a posture of humility as a fellow learner seeking God's counsel and God's perspective and God's wisdom. So I want to begin with something that scripture makes absolutely and unmistakably clear that all Christ followers need to agree on. And that is this, racism and prejudice are not just social issues. They are severe sin issues. Racism and prejudice are anti-gospel. From the opening passages of scripture, we see that God has created all people in the, in the Imago Dei, the image of God. He's given us all an equal measure of sanctity and worth. The dignity and sanctity of every single human life is unassailable. Racism inherently demise, de- denies the Imago Dei for the people who are different than us. It denies it because we view other groups as lesser and less important, and it always leads to injustice. And the evil of racism is also addressed many times in the New Testament. You have to be blind to read through the New Testament and not see that. We see it all the way back in Acts chapter 6 in the early church. A lot of us say, let's just go back to the ways the early church was. Well, prejudice was a problem back then too. You had the church handing out food to all the widows. And there were some widows that were starving to death because they were more of the Hellenized Jews 
and the more culturally Jewish people didn't like them, so they weren't giving them any food. And they had to come and petition the apostles to have their widows fed. The one time we see an apostle call out another apostle in the New Testament is over the issue of racism and prejudice. Think of what, think of what Paul writes when in Galatians when he is calling out the apostle Peter at the church in Antioch. He calls Peter out to his face. Why is that? Because Peter withdrew from his Gentiles, brothers and sisters in Christ as soon as his Jewish friends came to town. And through his actions, he was essentially saying, you know what? You're second class. You're not really first class Christians and I'm gonna hang out with the cool kids. And Paul comes in and throws down the towel and says, Peter, you are out of step with the gospel. And he calls it out. Paul says that kind of prejudice is outside of the step of the truth of the gospel, that the dividing wall of hostility was torn down through Jesus. How can you declare someone to be unequal or unclean who God has declared to be equal and clean? So racism is not just a social issue. It's not just a cultural issue. It's a sin issue. And the church needs to be unmistakably clear about that. Prejudice and racism are not things that we can just agree to disagree upon. You know, I was really challenged on that front this week when I was listening to an interview done with Dr. Crawford Loritz. Uh, Dr. Loritz is a African-American pastor of a wonderful gospel preaching church down in Atlanta, Georgia. He's a pastor who's made a profound impact on my personal spiritual life, and I have the utmost respect for him. During this interview, he said something that I thought was profound. He said this, it's not good enough for Christ followers to say, I'm not a racist person and therefore this debate doesn't really involve me and I can just sit on the sidelines. He said, if racism truly is a sin issue that violates the gospel, then we have to be actively anti-racism. Isn't that what we do with other sin issues? We speak out against the sin of abortion. We have sermons on that topic. We have days of prayer. We have social media posts about it. We speak out about sexual sin. We have endless sermons on that topic. We have a very public position in our culture on where we stand. And we have countless books and conferences that help people overcome that sin in their life. When was the last time you heard a sermon about racism or prejudice? When was the last time you heard that sin being called out? When was the last time we lamented that sin in our culture. And you know, that stung a little bit when I heard that because I think he's far more right than we'd probably like to admit. Perhaps the church has been a little too silent on the issue of racism and prejudice in the past. If this is a sin issue and not just a social issue, then we need to speak out about the sin of racism and prejudice. Now at this point... I can sense a lurking objection that some might be feeling. Well, of course we need to be anti-prejudice and anti-racism, but those things aren't really a problem in 21st century America. People are just making a lot of hay out of nothing. Now, if that's your gut reaction, then I would like to humbly encourage you to just exercise a little caution. We can be quick, and we all do this. We can be quick of jumping to conclusions sometimes. A wise pastor once wrote this. He said, sometimes we can be blind to our own blindness. 
And what he means by that is this. Sometimes we can be really certain that we are seeing things very clearly and accurately only to have a blind spot. And we all know what it's like to have a blind spot. You're driving down the interstate. You're hoping to hop over a lane. You look in your mirror. You turn on the signal. You start to drift over. You hear, and then you like immediately swerve over and you think you're going to have a wreck. Why? Because unbeknownst to you, there was a huge car right in your blind spot for the last five miles. That happens sometimes. We all know what it's like to have a blind spot. I, I want to share just two quick stories with you about incidents when my blind spots on this particular issue were exposed for the first time. I think of when I lived in California and I had a very, very good friend and coworker. We were uh, the high school, did the high school ministry together. He was of Hispanic descent. And I remember the first time that I traveled with him to the airport. We were all headed to the airport together for a conference. And when we were there, and this happened multiple times, he said to me as we were staying in line together, just go on through and don't even wait for me. I said, what are you talking about? Like, we're just going through security. He said, I'm going to get pulled over for extra security. It happens every time. Don't, don't wait for me. And there was obviously a tone of pain and frustration on his face. So I thought he was being dramatic, but we go through security and guess what happens? He gets pulled over. We come back from Guatemala. Guess who gets pulled aside for questioning in a detention room? He does. Every time we traveled. That was my first instance. Here's my second instance. It happened a couple summers ago when I was in Chicago. Megan and I had just finished watching a play at the theater in downtown Chicago. We were walking to Millennium Park because there was a free orchestra concert that night. As we walked into the park, there had been a lot of unrest in the city at that point, so they had guards posted at all the different entrances, and they were kind of just making sure you had to go through a security checkpoint. As I was walking up, there was a newer security guard who was being mentored by an older security guard, and the younger one was of a different ethnicity than my ethnicity. And he came over and he said, excuse me, sir, can you come go through this metal detector? I'm going to wand you and ask you a few questions. The older security guard came over and quickly pushed him aside and said, what are you doing? And he looked over at him. He said, sir, I'm sorry. Go right ahead through. I came from the theater, so I had my nice suit on. I had my hair all done. And as we're walking into the park, I heard him say to the other guy, that's not the type of person that we're looking for. Don't bother him. That was the first moment where I really began to realize, oh, maybe sometimes you do get treated differently based on the way that you look. I share those instances because that was just the first time I felt like, man, I, maybe I had a blind spot I didn't realize. And you know, we'll never have our blind spots exposed if we don't actually listen to the real experiences of those who have suffered from discrimination and prejudice. So here's my first word of application for us tonight. We need to value listening over lecturing. We need to value listening over lecturing. We need to listen, learn, and love. And if we are only listening to people who hold our own presuppositions and viewpoints, we're not really listening. If we're only listening to voices of people who look and think just like we do, we're not really listening. We're just hearing an echo chamber. So let's practice tonight. Let's practice right now. This is a letter. It's too long to read it in its entirety, so it's abridged. Some of you have interacted with it on social media this week. It's by an African-American brother in Christ named Shailin, who's a rapper. He's an astute theological thinker. He's a godly man. He's written a lot of 
gospel-centered music. And here's a letter that he wrote to a, a, a white sister who had asked him how he was doing in the light of everything recently. So let's just listen for a moment. Here's an abridged version of that letter. He says, sister, I'm heartbroken and I'm devastated. I feel gutted. I haven't been able to focus on much at all since I saw the horrific video of George Floyd's murder. The image of that officer with his hand in his pocket as he calmly and callously squeezed the life of that man while he begged for his life is an image that will haunt me until the day that I die. But it's not just the video of this one instance. This is about how being a black man in America has shaped both the way that I see myself and the way that I see others my whole life. It's about being told to leave a sneaker store when I was 12 years old because I took too long to decide which sneakers I wanted to buy with my birthday money and the saleswoman assumed I was in the store to steal something. It's about being handcuffed and thrown into the back of a police car while I was walking down the street in college and then waiting for a white couple to identify whether or not I was the one who had just committed a crime against them knowing that if they said I was the one, I'd be immediately taken to jail, no questions asked. It's about walking down the street as a young man and beginning to notice that white people, women especially, would cross to the other side of the street to avoid walking past me. And then I began to preemptively cross to the other side to save myself the embarrassment and humiliation of that silent transaction. It's about taking a road trip with my sons to visit my wife in Michigan. My greatest fear is being pulled over for no other reason than driving while black, being told to get out of the car, cuffed, and sat down on the side of the road, utterly emasculated and humiliated with my young boys looking out the window, terrified, which is exactly what happened to a good friend of mine when he took his family on a road trip. It's about the exhaustion of constantly feeling I have to assert my humanity in front of some of uh, my white friends for the first time I'm meeting them to let them know, hey, I'm not a threat. You don't have to be afraid of me. I'm sure if you got to know me, we'd have things in common. It's about intentionally making sure that the car seats are in the car and even if my kids aren't, so that when, not if, because it happens to me all the time, I'm pulled over, they will perhaps notice the car seats and the wedding band on my ring and which I've been taught to keep my hands on the wheel so they can see, make sure, you know, and then even then only reaching for anything in an exaggeratedly slow manner that someone will think to them himself that this man is married with a family and small kids and he wants to get home safely to his family just like I do. It's about having to explain to my four-year-old son as mostly white Christian school that the kids who laughed at him and mocked him for having brown skin were wrong and that God made him in his image and that his skin is beautiful too. After he told me, Daddy, I don't want brown skin anymore. I want white skin. So when I watch a video like George Floyd's, it represents for me the fresh opening of a deep wound and the reliving of layers of trauma that get exponentially compounded. And then it continues on. Now our first reaction to hearing that might be a desire to lecture him on how his perception is incorrect. We might bristle because his experiences don't align with our perceptions of reality. However, I encourage you to consider your brother's needs as more significant than your own and to just listen. Listen to the pain of our brothers and sisters who have experienced prejudice and racism. Learn from his story how we can love him better as a brother. Instead of lecturing, what would it look like if we suspended judgment and genuinely listened and learned? Here's my second application point, and trust me, they get far shorter each time. 
We need to value nuance over slogans. We need to value nuance over slogans. We live in an age of Twitter, 140 characters or less. We consume soundbite news. We listen to overgeneralized slogans instead of nuanced conversations. We make ultimatums when truth is usually somewhere in the middle. We consign people to the categories of us versus them based on what slogan they use or don't use without really listening to their point of view. Instead of having real conversations, our culture loves to politicize and polarize. And as Christ followers, we have to resist the urge to sensationalize and generalize. We need to value the power of nuance in this difficult conversation. Do black lives matter? Absolutely. 100%. Everyone is created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Are all police officers in the United States brutal, racist, and corrupt? No, they're not. Now, there are certainly some who are, and sadly, we're seeing a demonstration of that far too often. And we need to see a change in the hearts of people who are exercising such injustice. But not all police officers are guilty of the sins of some. There are many police officers who are trying to do their jobs justly. We have many who attend our church. Do all people, especially ethnic minorities, have the freedom to protest injustice and to voice their stories and rally for change? Yes, absolutely. That is a constitutional guarantee. They have a right to make their voices heard and our country should listen to their stories of injustice. We should listen. We cannot turn a blind eye to their pain and suffering. However, does injustice open the door for violent rioting or, or looting at the expense of lives or livelihood? Well, from a Christian worldview, we'd say no. God reminds us we're not to repay anyone evil for evil and we're to be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. I share all of that to explain that no slogan on either side of the debate captures the nuanced approach and the nuanced conversation we need to have to make real change. We need a nuanced answer to a complex problem, but a lot of the times we are far too quick to jump to ultimatums and generalizations and put on our hats of us versus them. Let James 1.9 be our compass in this time. Everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to be angry. And that brings me to my last word of application. We need to dislike serious blunders, but never sincere brothers. As we continue to dialogue about complex issues of racism and prejudice, we need to extend grace to other people in our conversations. Here's the reality. As we're having these conversations, at some point, we're probably going to say something that is hurtful or unkind to the person who disagrees with us. That's going to happen in our conversations. There's going to be blunders. And there might be some severe blunders. And in those moments, we need to take the high road and we need to extend grace as best as we can. We need to extend unity to one, or we need to extend grace to one another. And as we strive for unity as a spiritual family, 
We can't view our sincere siblings as an enemy to be defeated. The first rule of conflict marriage, if you take premarital here, the person is not the problem. The problem's the problem. Make sure to keep the problem the focus. We don't want to demonize our brothers and sisters in Christ as we have this conversation. Now more than ever, the Christian community needs to be like the forest of redwoods who are holding each other up through the storms of society that rage around us. Now more than ever, the church needs to be unified so that God might be glorified. Now more than ever, we need to set aside the boxes of us versus them and look across and realize that we are brothers and sisters in Christ who have all been made in the incredible image of God. We need to be united in that glorious truth. Right now, the only answer to what we face is the gospel. The gospel is the only thing with the power to bind back the pieces of our broken society. If we're so busy fighting with each other that we can't rally around the gospel, change is never gonna come. When the church is unified, God is glorified. Let's pray. Father, we live in a divided culture. We live in a world of brokenness and we see the damaging effects of sin in every facet of our daily lives and allow this to cause us to hate sin that much more. Sin destroys everything that it touches, but your grace heals everything that it touches. So Father, right now, help us to rally around the beauty and the truth and the transforming power of the gospel. Allow the gospel to transform our hearts to look more like Christ. So if there's an area where we have been divisive, forgive us. There's an area where we have been prejudiced, forgive us. There's an area where we have not championed the gospel as we should, forgive us. Holy Spirit, fill us and allow us to be your witnesses in this community, in our culture, our country, in our world for Christ. We love you, Father, and we are so grateful that you are not done working with us. Use us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.